Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 273. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so excited to be talking with Dr. Mona Delahook. Mona, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited too. So you are a pediatric psychologist and the author of Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges. So I'm really interested in talking with you about your book and all the ways that you help parents understand children's behavior. Mm. But before we even dive into it, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I didn't start out as a pediatric or child psychologist. I started out as a regular psychologist who's, you know, and I've been in the field for, wow, it's like um, almost 30 years now. So way back when, and also actually now that our field starts kind of starts at age three to five and just describing our training and how humans develop and, and all so I was, a, I was a psychologist for about a decade, and I had an office right next to Caltech in Pasadena. Have you ever heard of that college? Mm-hmm. So it was a, a well-known college with a lot of bright students, and I was um, seeing a lot of the students there. And over the decade, I realized that I was hearing so many traumatic stories of these adults now in their early 20s of what they went through when they were toddlers and what they went through when they were young children. And 
at that point, I was uh, becoming a mother myself. I'd had a couple of children by then. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I wish I could have talked to your parents 20 years ago. I wish I could have explained some things to your parents because you're suffering so much. So long story short, I decided after about a decade in the field that I was going to take a uh, sabbatical and study infant and toddler development. So I took three years off and I got two certificates in a very uh, little known subspecialty called infant mental health. And once I started studying infancy, I fell in love with pediatrics. And I also saw the application to how we can prevent trauma, toxic stress, and psychological problems by understanding the developmental basis of mental health and resilience. So I am so grateful that I that I got this refocus because honestly, it took me away from the field of psychology, even though I'm still a member of the American Psychological Association. It took me into occupational therapy, into physical therapy, into pediatrics. I was on a, in a multidisciplinary hospital team for a year where we had a whole team that included a teacher, a mental health professional, a psychiatrist, a pediatrician, an occupational therapist, because sense are, the way we understand the world is through our senses. And coming out of that specialty, I opened a new practice with the focus on early development, but also with the focus on subspecialty of neurodivergent conditions such as autism. And this is when children were being diagnosed uh, with autism at younger and younger ages. So through the, through the last uh, 20 years of, of applying the model, I came to realize I became a kind of a, a specialist or I was asked to come in as a, a expert in school teams, IEPs and schools, agencies, et cetera, for children with very challenging behaviors. And I kind of became the expert on, uh, on that topic. And so as I was in the schools and observing our treatment models for behavioral and disruptive challenges, especially the most disruptive behaviors that are often given labels like oppositional defiance, which I don't believe is a, is a disorder, but an actually a label of misunderstanding. Me too. Okay, yay, kindred spirit. Yeah, so we can talk about the, the, the how the DSM is being transformed. But what I observed was that the children who are being treated years ago and currently, for the most part, with behavioral approaches, which is what is the in the fiber of our educational system, uh, it's called functional behavioral analysis is where behaviors are analyzed, is, was and is an outdated model of helping children with disruptive behaviors. And so I, through the years, I found so much success with it and gathered hundreds and hundreds of, of case studies. And it came to be the book Beyond Behaviors, which I wrote uh, a couple of years ago. Well, it's it's a fabulous book. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I haven't read the whole book, but just looking at it as it's in front of me, I know that I am going to be sharing it with so many people because it has a lot of visuals and those are helpful for obviously the therapist who's reading and learning, but also for the families that we work with when we're trying to explain these concepts, just seeing it visually 
helps, you know, it's just more, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things that I see in your book right away that really spoke to me and is what I'm so interested in talking with you about is you have a, an image you call the developmental iceberg and the, it shows an iceberg above the, you know, water or whatever. And the icy part at the top, it says what's going on, behavioral challenges. So that's what you see. And then under the surface, it says, why is it happening? And it, it notes internal bodily processes sensations processed in the brain slash body, emotions, developmental capacities and processes, ability to plan and execute actions, memories, thoughts, ideas. So it's, I love that you incorporate, you know, for one, the sensory aspect that you mentioned, because that's, that's such a piece that even in mental health, we do not learn about that. And drives me crazy that occupational therapists are like the ones who learn about it and (laughs) mental health people don't, but it's such an important aspect of our, you know, of the whole person who's in front of you. It's really a major drawback that we don't learn about that. It's kind of like crazy, honestly. Honestly, it is unbelievable because our sensory systems, you know, there are eight of them, but we can think of the, the typical ones, right? How we, how we take in the world through our eyes, through our ears, through our touch, through our smells. That's the only way we are in the world. It's how we interpret our world. It's how that's, you know, again, it, when you study babies, you can clearly see they are little sensate beings. They don't have reasoning yet. They can't talk to you. They are taking in the world through their senses. Well, we're all sense beings. And somehow the field of mental health has completely unintegrated sensory integration and they need to integrate it, which is what I, again, what I, one of my goals in Beyond Behaviors, there's a whole chapter and I refer to it throughout the book because the key to understanding ourselves and our children is understanding how we take in the world and how our nervous system takes in the world. Exactly. The nervous system, because You know, there's the behavioral approach to me says that the person is making a choice and you hear it all the time. Now, parents have this language that all the parents use and you made a choice, a bad choice or a good choice or, you know, you chose to do this. And I'm thinking a lot of it is not a choice because it's a reaction and they're just their body responds to their internal experience, whether it's an attachment process, a trauma process, a sensory process, and or the others that are mentioned on your iceberg. Absolutely. So they don't have control over it. But Laura, what you just said is huge because I don't know if parents and therapists really understand that there are two different main categories of behaviors. Volitional, meaning intentional, on-purpose behaviors, and instinctual, adaptive, subconscious behaviors. What you just said was huge because when something is a reaction, it's not pre-planned. It is what we call neurodevelopmentally adaptive because it is protective of the child's nervous system. So maybe I can explain really quick a little bit about the difference between top-down and bottom-up behaviors because this is something I want all therapists to know. And parents too. Please, please. Great. So we have two different kinds of large categories of behaviors, top down and bottom up. 
Top-down behaviors are those ones that the person, adult or child, is thoughtfully thinking about the behavior and doing it intentionally. So an example would be, let's say, a five-year-old who sneaks into the kitchen and eats half of the dinner before dinner time while mommy's distracted on the phone and uh, crawls away to their bedroom and, you know, well, you weren't supposed to eat dinner yet. Okay, that was a top-down behavior. The child saw the food and intended to eat it. The hunger uh, may have been the bottom-up source of it, but it was still the child was in charge and they knew what they were doing. Now, the second category of behaviors are bottom up or body up behaviors. Body up behaviors are when the nervous system subconsciously detects threat or being unsafe. And then there is an action associated with this microsecond evaluation of the environment. Again, take a five-year-old. All of a sudden, they're in the kitchen. And this child happens to have acute sensitivity to certain thunderous sounds and a large truck rumbles down the road. The child's eating dinner. The next thing you know, they throw their dinner off the table. They've had a sudden nervous system, what we call neuroception of threat. And the protective reaction is you move your body very fast without thought. And that child's throwing the dish. If you ask the child why they did it, they would have no idea. And the parent is usually, why did you do that? That's like, why did you make that choice? Well, it wasn't a choice. It was a reaction. So the main thing, uh, one of the main things we need to understand, we need to determine is if a child's behavior is top down or bottom up so that we know how to instruct the parent or how the parent should react in the moment. Okay, so, you know, it just makes me think right now, I feel like there can be a lot of misinterpretation or misunderstanding by parents, teachers therapists about the what's happening because I'm, I'm thinking about like when you said the example of the child who sneaks into the kitchen and eats half the dinner you know I thought about children I've worked with who hoard food in their rooms you know or they they steal like you know there's a candy dish and they put a bunch of the candy in their pocket and but it's it's like it's intentional that they're doing it, that they're putting it in their pocket, but it's based in for the children. I'm thinking of a past experience of deprivation yes. where they don't know when that's going to happen again. So how how can we discern? Yeah, that is a great example of the underlying causality. Right. So you have an in the moment behavior which can be instinctive or purposeful. And then you have these body up causes of behaviors that are gathered throughout the lifetime from the moment we're born, actually from in utero, right? Because you're gathering experience, sensory experiences from the moment you are, you know, in gestation. And then from the moment you're born, you're gathering experiences. So a child who, for example, has had environmental deprivation early on, uh, say you can save for food, for example, who has been hungry a lot, who had a lot of food insecurity in their early years, and maybe they are adopted or in a foster home or, or, or something like that, um, or not. And the protective, adaptive nature of human beings is that we make predictions on how we can keep ourselves alive and safe 
based on subconscious past experiences and conscious past experiences. So many of the children that I've worked with with trauma histories or histories of toxic stress will have those kinds of behaviors. They may hoard toys. They may hoard food. They may do behaviors that look can look to the teacher or to, the, to a, a parent as quote unquote odd. But I'm really uh, wanting parents to know that there isn't such a thing as an odd behavior because they make sense to the child's nervous system and to the child's history of distress. Does that help yeah. answer that? And as you say that, it's like that's where the compassion piece comes in is to me, it's like, I think it's very triggering for me somehow. I don't even know why. But when I hear children's behavior being attributed to defiance or like, you know, they're just being manipulative or they looked me right in the eye and then they did exactly what they weren't supposed to. And I know like when you know, when you really look at that child's trauma and attachment history, if you have enough information to know, because, you know, for me, a lot of times when you don't know, it's like, well, what could be there that hasn't been identified that could be causing this child to behave this way? You know, I can feel compassion for the child when I think about their what could be driving their behavior based on a need to get a survival need met or an attachment need met, you know, or to feel safe. But, you know, it's so common for I'll take teachers out of it because they're not they're not in the same kind of relationship with uh, the child as a parent is. But with, for a parent, that's often like, well, they've never had any trauma or they've never, you know, there's no attachment problems. We have a happy household here, you know, but but then, you know, I'm, I always go back to like this child didn't come out of the womb just wanting to be difficult. You know, they just were that's born. Right. Damn, that's didn't. right. <laughs> yes. Yes. But first of all, so much compassion for parents and teachers, yes. because as a parent, I know and I I raised my first two children without the benefit of this knowledge. And I absolutely believed that all the behaviors were, you know, coming from some sort of limit testing or getting negative attention, which I now know is a non-concept, but I believed it. And I was a psychologist, right? I mean, I, I had read the literature about how important it was to be, have firm limits and yet be loving, you know, I did all that. And so it's very hard to be a parent. It's super hard to be a parent. Yeah. And I'm a parent too. And I, I didn't, yeah. I wasn't even, I didn't even know anything about attachment when I started. So it was all yeah. <laughs> on instinct, which I'm sure I made many mistakes. I know it. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. It is such a hard job. But going back to this idea of, of, of a behavior serve and compassion for that behavior. If you shift the lens from thinking that everything is limit setting or, or negative attention or something I need to teach the child a lesson, because that's what I often thought is like, if I don't teach you right now, you're, you're not going to learn. I'm not going to raise you up. Right. Right. And I, you're not going to learn what I need you to learn. But and then you're going to go out there in the world and become a criminal and go to jail. Yeah, yeah. you'll be impolite like, and yes. the neighbors will, uh, you know, look at you as you walk down the street and you're in, uh, get kicked out of high school and you know your yeah. mind just goes to all sorts exactly. of things. But when we look at behaviors from a new lens, from this lens of compassion, we can see 
that here's what I want parents to know and a therapist to know who are working with parents who've had, who've done the best job they can. There's no outright, what one would consider a traditional view of trauma in their house, right? The children have had enough to eat. The parents have read all the books and everyone's doing great. And yet they come to our offices with children who are having very challenging, disruptive behaviors. So here's why. This idea of something called neuroception, which I describe in the book, it's, it's Dr. Stephen Porges's uh, word for the subconscious detection of safety and threat, which he coined in 2004. Me tells us that everybody's, everybody's perception, every human being's perception of what their nervous system codes as safety, safe or threatening is subjective. So you can have a perfectly amazing parent. And I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of probably thousands of parents who are so amazing and have children with behavioral challenges because the child's perception of threat hasn't been taken into consideration because it's invisible. The threat's invisible. We go back to the iceberg. There are millions of causes for disruptive behaviors that are caused by the neuroception of threat under the tip of the, of, of the iceberg. One big category is sensory. There are many children, especially if your child's under 10, and you notice the disruptive behaviors starting at around 12 to 15 months or around age two. If they started young, there's a chance that the child may have under or overreactivity or sensory craving to one of the senses. This is a, one of the about 16 to 17% of children have some sort of funkiness in their sensory processing. That is something that pediatricians generally don't know about. Parents certainly don't know about it. And, um, so that would be an example of a perfectly amazing parent and a child who's who's does these weird things like attack their siblings, say bad words, have all these tantrums, right? And start to yell and scream. And the parent's like, wait, I'm just trying to wash your hair. So that sensory piece is one. Another one is, you know, that constitutional genetic component. Some children have more sensitivity inside of their gut. It's called interoception. So inside of your body, some children are more sensitive. And so early on, you'll usually see these kinds of kids who have who, who are less easy to regulate, to co-regulate, and who have trouble settling their little bodies down, and the parents are amazing. <laughs> so this is another reason I wrote Beyond Behaviors, is to give therapists checklists to ask parents so that we can be de detectives, so we can find out all those causes underneath the tip, underneath the waterline, essentially that caused the behaviors. That's so wonderful again. And, you know, I, I wish I had found this book sooner because, <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've wanted to help people once I found out about the sensory aspect and I have training in sensory motor psychotherapy, which does include interoception and neuroception and, but it's still not, you know, super in depth on that aspect, but um, right. at least right. through level two, but it is, but it's, it's still more focused on the five sense perception. Yes. Yes. And just so you know, the research by the, the neuroscience research on interoception and self-regulation is 
it's exploded in the last five years. And it's so interesting to me that they are linking the certain part of the brain related to interoception. It's in the middle, medial, it's the middle of the brain. It's not the prefrontal, it's the medial. I can't remember what structure it involves, but yes, what you're saying is this in-depth understanding is just unfolding. And I would be happy if mental health professionals got even a basic sensory processing interoception course. You know, my daughter is a is a marriage and family therapist. And so she went through her program around seven years ago, five years ago or so. And I looked at all her curriculum and it shocked me. And she was in a really good program. It shocked me. The books she read were among a lot of the ones that I read in my training 30 years ago. Like the ball, they did read uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which is like one of the Bibles of, of trauma, I think people need to read, but our field is sadly entrenched in cognition. We worship at the ground of the thinking mind when we need to look at somewhere else. We need to look at the nervous system. It's bi-directional, yes. people. <laughs> the it's mind like, is not separate from the body. We're it's not a disembodied head. Yes. And yet we are trained ad nauseum on how to talk to people. Yammer, yammer, yammer. Let me talk about this. And here's where I, again, I want therapists to, to know that I believe where the field of child psychology is going is not individual therapy for children, except for in some cases where the parents or caregivers may have a toxic relationship with a child. But for the most part, we are really looking at a co at a parent coaching model and not sticking kids in a room with a stranger to talk about their problems. Bessel, I was in a, a trauma conference, uh, I keynoted yesterday and Bessel was in it on Monday. And he said that talk, making kids talk or adults, trauma victims talk about their problems is not the way to go. That oftentimes just makes it worse. So I know it's the holy grail psychotherapy, but we honestly, we have to, we have to start looking at some of this stuff and add more body activities into, because that's where the nervous system comes in. It's that feedback from the body to the brain and the brain to the body that you're okay, you're safe. And we need to rewire people's and children's perceptions of safety as soon as possible, because right now children are getting messages, even if they're, if their parents are cool and understanding that behaviors have meaning at school right now, they're getting labeled, they're getting sent to the office, they're getting put on 504s, which is those specialized plans for emotional problems for kids. The education system is really out, out even more outdated than mental health. With all due respect to teachers listening to this, this is a, I want this to be a self-compassion. Not their fault. Yeah, they're it's not learning. It's not their fault. This yeah. is so much compassion and self-compassion. We need to heap on ourselves, but also understand that, that the basics of the nervous system, particularly the autonomic nervous system, has, is not very well integrated into our treatment modules, our treatment techniques. Yes. And, you know, and, and in this is about it's not about parents are bad it's not about teachers are bad also teachers and parents were all once children and that's part of it is that we didn't get this so we don't have it to 
use to help us understand what's going on with our kids. That's right. Exactly. We were probably told, I mean, I know I was told by very well-meaning parents, don't worry about it. Oh, there's nothing to worry about. If I was scared, it's like, just think about happy thought, you know, or. Oh, don't uh, cry. Uh, yeah. You know, even in, in a, a kind yes. way, not in a yes, you know, yes. harsh way. Yes. Yes. Our, 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 you know, many generations we've, I think we are now with the positive parenting movement. There's a lot more acceptance. There's a lot more ability for parents to sit with a child who's struggling, you know, so it's, we have come a, a certain amount of ways, but we also are, are still involved in kind of unknowingly, and again, I did it myself, but unknowingly shaming children for aggressive behaviors when what we should be doing is acknowledging the pain they're in. Instead of like, you know, how could you do that to your brother? You know, how could you, how could you break my plate? And of course we're, we're angry. And I have a whole section in the book about how we calm ourselves down. Right. But yeah. just to understand, but children, as my colleague Ross Green says, children do well if they can. And if they can't, there's a reason. It's not that they want to harm us. It's not that they want to cause all this chaos in our lives, even though it certainly can feel that way sometimes. Yes. And, and I think that in the time we have left, it would be great to talk a little bit more about co-regulation because, you know, when you were talking about Bessel van der Kolk saying talking isn't the way, I was thinking about how sometimes we try to regulate children through talking, but it's really, my understanding is it's really like their felt sense from our body of safety. And if so please, if you can go into more detail, oh, yeah, like how parents can help children become more regulated. Yeah, this is the great this is the juicy stuff. This is the, <laughs> this is where the this is where the rubber meets the road. So the what we know from from Dr. Stephen Porges, who developed the polyvagal theory and the, this whole concept of neuroception is that what hits another person first and by hits, I mean, process, what's what a child processes first or another human we're talking to isn't our words. It's our emotional tone. So microseconds before we start to talk to children. And by the way, if a child is in the fight or flight system of the sympathetic nervous system, there's three main systems, but the fight or flight is when they're kicking, hitting, screaming, throwing, yelling. They are, they are not attenuated to, to listen anyway. The system is not in a listening phase. So it's, it's pretty useless to try to talk then. But even when a child is calm, the first thing that comes to a child isn't what we say, it's how we are. So we move from teaching to being first. We want to just be present and the look on our face, the tone of our voice, our body posture in mammals, those three things convey our autonomic state to children. So as Deb Dana says, she's a, a polyvagal therapist. She, she says, we need to befriend our nervous system so that the child will befriend their nervous system. So point number one it, it's not start with how you are, take real good care of yourself, take a few deep breaths. But before you start saying something to, to the child, make sure that you're in a calm state. The second piece is that in a neurodevelopmental framework, and I know that's a big word, but here's a kind of, I talk about it as building the phases of building a house in Beyond Behaviors. Here's how a we build a child's ability to self-regulate. 
It starts with making sure their their body is physiologically regulated, which then allows them to uh, engage with us and to be open to us so that uh, the body feeling calm opens up what's called the social engagement system. And then the social engagement system is what leads to back and forth communication. This is the uh, Stanley Greenspan, Serena Weeder work, the DIR model. So co-regulation is sharing our calm, healthy nervous system with a child or with a parent. If you're a therapist, we share our, our nervous system with our clients, with our parents, right? We share it through our physiological Good state. one. Good one, yes. Mona. Good one. <laughs> this, is the, this is the new paradigm. This is the amazing work where we are sharing our physiology. We're sharing our calm state. This is what humans do for each other. And sometimes I think, uh, I know I do it myself, is I over-talk. I talk a lot. When I'm talking too much, it's telling me I'm feeling a little anxious in the room and I'm really feeling probably over-identifying with the parent and sensing how desperate they're feeling. So then I take a breath and I realize, okay, I need to slow down, sense where I'm at, and then check in with the parent and see where they're at and make sure that I'm co-regulating. And we can do that with our children too. So co-regulation is basically coming alongside another person. We do it very naturally with babies, right? Because we have to, they can't survive without co-regulation. But once they become toddlers, we think that they should be able to be more self-regulatory. And there's something called the expectation gap that uh, the Zero to Three Foundation did a great study. And it showed that most parents don't realize that children need far more co-regulation than we're giving them. We think that they should be able to regulate their own physiology, their own state, but they really can't. And so even though they can talk and walk and they look like little adults, they're not. They're very, very um, vulnerable little, little ones that need our our love, our attention, and are giving them the benefit of the doubt. Again, that's the compassion piece, right? Assuming that their intent is not negative towards us or towards the situation. Absolutely. And, And again, it's it's really it takes practice because it feels that way. It look, parenting is so how can we not take it personally? It's such an intimate piece. Right. We are our we are our children kind of are a projection of ourselves and vice versa. So it's a very difficult job. Let's just say that. And and it's easy to, and we get triggered. Nothing can be more triggering than your child because there's so much at stake. So that's why I devote a a whole chapter in a lot of the book about self-compassion and compassion, because if we aren't compassionate with ourselves, we are going to be very harsh self-critics and then we will tend to be maybe even a little more harsh on our kids. So uh, the work by Kristen Neff in uh, Mindful Self-Compassion, wow, she's done. Her work has spawned, I think, over 2,000 studies around the world in the benefits of self-compassion for parenting, for physical health, for mental health. So I encourage you to look up her work, too, for therapists. So it's, it's really wonderful. It's so synergistic. Compassion, self-compassion self-regulation. And as it turns out, all those things also help our physical bodies and help our inflammatory markers, 
our blood pressure, our cholesterol levels all go down when we're more calm and grounded in our bodies. Mm, there, you know, here comes the average childhood experiences study outcomes where, you know, it showed that these adverse experiences in childhood lead to poor mental and physical health outcomes over the lifespan. And the more we can intervene for our children early, the better their health will be over their lives. But, you know, it's never too late to intervene for ourselves and, you know, help lower the inflammation for ourselves. Because I think that one of the things that makes it so hard to be a calm centered parent is, you know, our own experiences where we weren't met with, that when we needed it as young children. So, oh my gosh, I could talk to you for another like five hours, but I know we can't right now, but um, because this was such a nice conversation. Thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. And before we finish, please tell our audience where they can find your work. I think you have a course coming out. Yes, we just launched a course. Well, thank you so much for having me, Laura. And we could talk for hours. I can tell we're kindred spirits. Um, It's wonderful to meet another therapist who is getting the word out there and um, helping our field move forward in, 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 in the greater senses of compassion and less medicalized labeling of disorders and move it towards um, this, this integrated uh, neuroscience plus compassion is a great combo. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having me. I am available uh, by through my website, monadelahook.com. And I've just enjoyed social media too in the last few years. Facebook, monadelahook PhD and at monadelahook on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, we have launched a course based on the on the success of the book Beyond Behaviors, which is available on Amazon. And so we just launched a course and it's a CE course for therapists, teachers, all disciplines, really occupational therapists, uh, all mental health therapists. It's just a, it's a CE course. It's a seven hour course, uh, self-paced. Uh, you can, it's pre-recorded, and we're also on uh, this month when we launch it, we're, it's going to, we're going to have two live group uh, zoom sessions for questions and answers. So if anyone's interested, they can, uh, Uh, go ahead and uh, look up my website, find a link there. Thank you so much. So I'll be heading right over there to check out that course. um, (laughs) (laughs) Is it like a time limited registration or it's going to be ongoing? Yes, um, it's going to be ongoing and any live things we do, I'm planning on um, doing uh, live zoom sessions. It'll in the course portal. It says bonuses. They will appear there and anything that you can't meet that's live is, is recorded. So there's going to be no, uh, wherever you, whenever you tune in, I'm going to be holding the the course at a at a really affordable rate for teachers and therapists and parents as as long as the company uh, that produced it lets me. So so happy to share that with you and just thank you so much for having me on. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. 
Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.